Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, why not consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Elisheva Goldberg. She's the media and policy director for the New Israel Fund and a contributing writer for Jewish Currents. She was an aide to former Israeli foreign minister Zippy Livni and has written for the Daily Beast, The Forward, The New Republic, and The Atlantic. Our conversation today is about a recent article for JewishCurrents.org. That's a site I recommend highly if you're looking for thoughtful and balanced coverage of the Palestine-Israel story. And you can find her story, The Palestinian Village and Smotrich's Sites, there on the website. Elisheva, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the West Bank village of Khan al-Akmar, where it is and why its location puts it in the crosshairs of the settler movement? Sure. So Khan al-Ahmar is a very, very small village. Um, It's only around 250 people. And it sits just north of Jerusalem inside of the West Bank. And today it actually sits on the side of a highway. So to get there, you kind of can either go through this little bypass road around and through, or you can just stop your car on the highway and jump across. But it's really become a thorn in the side of the settler movement. Um, I'll give you just a little bit of background and then I'll tell you why. So the people who live there are members of the Jahalin Bedouin tribe. This is a tribe that originally lived, um, you know, much further south in the what's called the Tel Arad area, an arid part of Israel below the West Bank, above the desert. They were shepherds. Um, they lived a Bedouin lifestyle where they raised sheep and goats and they traveled um, in the summer months as part of their lifestyle. And in 48, in 1948, when Israel was established, they fled slash were expelled from where they were living down in Tel Arad and different families sort of dispersed across the West Bank. Some of the Jahalin, for example, settled in um, the southern area of the West Bank called Musafariyata, closer to Tel Arad. But this family moved all the way up above Jerusalem. And when 1967 came around and then again, um, the, the, you know, the West Bank was occupied, and then the other turning point was, you know, the 1990s when the Oslo Accords were signed and uh, the West Bank was divided into different areas. And the, the Jahalin Bedouin are living in an area that's called Area C, uh, which is an area that Israel actually completely controls, both militarily um, and administratively, which means that Israel has complete control over the lives of these Palestinians. Um, so, for example, they're not they're not really able to build legally. Israel denies 98% of Palestinian requests for building permits in Area C. So that immediately results in, you know, residents building illegally. And this little tiny hamlet um, is built technically illegally. And in 2009, Israeli military authorities issued demolition orders for basically the entire village. And so they there's this back and forth with the state and residents petitioned the Supreme Court, the High Court of Justice, to keep their village where it was. And they've been in court for, they were in court for a decade until 2018, when the High Court of Justice actually upheld the state's decision to demolish the village. But as the piece notes that the village has not yet been demolished, it's been years and it's you know been talked about, they're going to demolish it, they're going to demolish it, but they, they haven't demolished it. And that's largely because 
this place that they're located in, and this is why it's in the crosshairs of the settler movement's vision, is is too sensitive. It's located in a place called E1, so it, which is just a designation. What it means is that it's in this corridor that connects the southern West Bank to the northern West Bank. Um, and it's this 12 square kilometer area between Jerusalem and the settlement of Maladumim to its north that this village sits, that the settlement movement has been pushing to build in this area for for a very long time. What it would do if they were to build in it, if they were to be able to remove this village, this what they would consider an impediment to their project and be able to build and um, have kind of a contiguous um, settlement from Jerusalem all the way to Maladumim is it would cut off the Palestinian south from the Palestinian north. And what it would do is it would create, it would it would make it impossible for a, what, you know, the international community has called for, for again, you know, years and years, which is a two-state solution. It would prevent what's called territorial contiguity between Jerusalem and those two sections of the West Bank to its north and south. So the village is really a symbol um, for the international community. And even though it's really small, and even though it has these demolition orders, it's remained where it is. And you mentioned Area C, that it's completely under the control of the Israelis. Uh, and of course, Bezalel Smotrich is both the finance minister and the deputy minister in the Ministry of Defense. And as such, he's in charge of civil administration in Area C. Give us a sketch of Mr. Smotrich. Smotrich. Um, Smotrich is the wonderkind of the settler extreme right. Um, you know, his kind of the, the person he's sort of always said in the same sentence with, which is Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, is this other kind of like far, far right extremist settler. But they're very, very different. Itamar Ben-Gvir is this kind of clownish, thuggish, kahanist guy, you know, who lives in Hebron. But Smutrich is like, you know, the kind of um, slightly more refined, but still extremely racist um, and homophobic and supremacist ex- version of the extreme right. He actually lives in an outpost. His home is technically illegal, not unlike Khan al-Ahmar, near the settlement of Kedumim. And he has dedicated his life to undermining the possibility of a Palestinian state and expanding the settlement project. So just to give you an example of what I mean by, and I say he's a Jewish supremacist, um, and, and really what Palestinians hear when they hear him speak, back in 2021, um, he addressed the Knesset and he said directly to Arab lawmakers in the Knesset, that it was a mistake that Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, didn't finish the job. In other words, didn't make a bigger Nakba, a bigger um, uh, expulsion of Arabs and throw you all out in 1948. He he really thinks that Israel is for Jews and there is no space for anybody who is not Jewish in the country. In 2005, also just to give you a sense of, of who he is and what his priorities are, he was arrested on the basis of his possession of 700 liters of gasoline. He was suspected of participating in an attempt to blow up the Ayalon Highway, which is a central highway in Israel, to prevent or hold up or you know disrupt the disengagement of Israeli settlers and forces from Gaza at the time. Um, he was held in jail for three weeks, but he didn't speak to authorities. Um, so he was actually released without an indictment, but he he was certainly a suspect in, a, in essentially what was a terror plot. And later on in his life, and this is 2005, a few years later, he founded an NGO that really gave him um, the boost that got him into the Knesset. The NGO is called Rigavim, and I mentioned it in the piece, um, and it monitors and pursues legal action in the Israeli court system against 
Palestinians who build illegally. That could be in Israel proper. There are lots of Palestinians who aren't able, similar to their brethren in the West Bank, to get permits to build. And so they also build illegally. And Israel does demolish their homes inside of Israel. We're talking about citizens. And it is mostly situated um, as like a kind of constant drone. And I mean this drone literally because they use drones in Regavim. They drone over Palestinian villages and they take pictures and they know any new construction that could be a, a you know a, a sheep pen that could be a bench that could be a water cistern it could be anything that is new that is technically illegal that they then call the government to come and demolish. So that's like you know the kind of organization that this guy this guy Basel Smutrich founded um and the kind of you know action that he encourages um and, and, and also- and so so i just i just if i could just come in there i mean it sounds like a fascist organization and am i right to say that uh smotridge has at times said that you can call me a fascist you can call me a homophobe yes he this has said man, <laughs> this man is the finance minister of yes, Israel, is. of the country that yes. presents itself as the middle east's only democracy yeah, it's getting much, much harder for them to do that. I would I would argue not just because of, I mean, it, to their own people, not just because of the things that they've been doing in the West Bank for years, but also because of the ways that they're pushing legislation to um, prevent, to, to, to undermine judicial independence inside the country itself, which, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I do want to say two more things about just very quickly about what it means that this man is not only the finance minister, but also a minister, as you say, in the Ministry of Defense and has new authority that has not been granted to a civilian government minister before um, over the lives of Palestinians in Area C. There's a significance to this position specifically for a couple of reasons. And obviously he wanted it because he knew the significance of the position, because as you know, the head of Regavim, as the founder of Regavim, he could he he's he's very strategic in the way that he's thinking. He knows that Area C is where he wants to focus. Area C only is only home to a number, a couple hundred thousand Palestinians. It's not where most Palestinians live. It's where most settlers live. And so his goal is to really drive all of the Palestinians out of that area first. So one of the central reasons that it's significant that he has this position is that is it has to do with what the feeling on the ground is. There are more demolitions, more illegal outposts popping up, more settler attacks, in fact, massive pogroms than there were in the past. Um, and the truth is that settlers are like, especially the radical violent ones, um, which are not all of the settlers, of course, are quite emboldened. They know that Smutrich has their back. He is in office. So when they commit acts of violence against Palestinians, they can almost guarantee that there won't be any repercussions. Um, and so that also means that Palestinians themselves feel more helpless and more terrorized by settlers than ever before. So that's what is happening on the ground. And then on top of that, you know, Smutrich, again, supports annexation of the West Bank. And what this position is, is it's a it's a small technical administrative change, but it is actually significant because the West Bank was previously or is still mostly occupied by the Israeli military. It's a military occupation. And that's how internationally it is related to as a military occupation. But when you have a civilian minister who was elected by people who live inside of a country who, you know, of a country where where the person that they're electing now rules over people who did not elect them. In other words, the Palestinians in Area C that Smutrich is ruling did not elect him. We have a different animal on our hands. We no longer just have a military occupation where, where, uh, you know, the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, is ruling Palestinians. We have 
an elected minister ruling Palestinians who they did not elect. And that is something different. And that is what, what you know, legal scholars are calling de facto and de, not just de facto, but de jure, like legal annexation. Um, and it's a it's it's a thing that I think has been less noted by the media because it's kind of a hard thing to grasp. It's a technicality, but it's very significant. Mm, yeah, very, very good that you've made that uh, point. And, and as you say, very significant, particularly given the sort of individual that Smotrich is and and the organization that he has backing him uh, the idea that they have drones, literally drones, and are going out and and demolishing uh, Palestinian homes via the images of these drones is really quite quite frightening. But I want to ask you about uh, Mr. Netanyahu now because he's been coy about the future of Khan al Akmar. Uh, he said it will be demolished, and then he pushes the decision into the long grass. So, so what's going on there? Because of course he owes his premiership now to the likes of Smotuch and, and Ben Kavir. That's exactly right. Um, he has put himself into a corner in this sense. Um, he is a, you know, there's one thing you can say that's positive about Benjamin Netanyahu, if it's even positive, but you can certainly, you can, <laughs> he is a excellent politician. This man is a superb politician. He can get out of anything. He can get into anything. And I really believe that. And, you know, the international community has rallied around Khan al-Ahmar again and again, um, and he knows that he doesn't want more pressure on his back, right? Right now he has enough with this government that's causing him, you know, endless amounts of international challenges because of the things that they say and because of the things that they want to do. And because of, you know, he he has, um, this is the furthest right coalition he has ever formed. In fact, it's the furthest right coalition that Israel has ever seen. Um, and so, you know, it's quite a challenge for him to manage. And so I think that one of the reasons he's pushing Khan al-Ahmar specifically into the long grass, as you say, is that this little village has name recognition worldwide. And he doesn't want that that sense of, you know, he's really going for what everybody knows. He, he wants to push that off. And there are other villages, I should just really, this is important, that don't have this kind of name recognition that are partially or even totally demolished basically all the time. And no one hears about them outside of the Palestinian press or the Twitter feeds of human rights organizations like Yeshdin or B'Tselem, because, you know, they don't have the name recognition. Just this week, B'Tselem documented the fact that 20 residents the very of the very, very small town in a community in South Hebron Hills called Al-Widadi, they abandoned their homes. And they abandoned their homes after repeated attacks by settlers and the erection of a new outpost nearby. And this is the third community in the West Bank to literally leave everything, their homes, and go somewhere else, not in Area C probably, in the last two months. So pushing Khan al-Ahmar, you know, dem the demolition off while demolishing and enabling the destructions of tens of other villages is actually very tactically smart and gets, you know, the coalition, makes the coalition happy because it's still happening and it prevents the international community from saying anything. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that there's, you know, mm -hmm. um, even as it's pushed off, there's still, there's still very similar things happening all the time. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law and Elisheva Goldberg. You've probably noticed, or maybe not, that our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Alisheva, you uh, mentioned that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was under a lot of uh, international scrutiny. 
but also a lot of pressure at home, these protests that are ongoing over his um, so-called judicial reforms. And, you know, these massive protests, will those protests in any way help the cause of the villagers at Har Lakbar and indeed these other villages that are being demolished? Will it help help the, the wider Palestinian cause? Because we're talking about human rights here, aren't we, uh, on both sides. Is, is there any kind of recognition there that, oh, my goodness, this is what the Palestinians are talking about when they talk about human rights. And maybe we've got some common ground here. Yeah, so I think it's, it's, this is a million dollar question, really. It's a really excellent question. Will these, you know, these protests, which are sweeping Israel, I mean, they've been, they're in there like, you know, I don't know, 29th week. I don't want to count wrong, but it's been months and months of these protests against a package of legislation that Netanyahu's ministers, Netanyahu's um, people in the Likud, not in the far, far right, not the Batsal Asmutriches, are trying to pass that would weaken the Israeli judiciary in favor of the Israeli government. In other words, it would it would basically give what is already a very weak democratic system a push in the direction of majoritarianism, of total domination by the legislature, uh, and the legislature being, in this case, the government only, because the 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 way that the opposition and the coalition work in Israel is that the government really, the, the, the coalition, the, the formed government really has all of the power. So um, this judicial reform is a package of legislation. And again, like, you know, it's caused all these protests. And I will just say that, and it's important for me to note that this is also as a, a staff member of the New Israel Fund, which, you know, has been has been helping to, to seed money into some of these protests, specifically parts of the protests that have to do with anti-occupation that say the words, you know, there really can't be because, you know, the chant of these protests is democracy, democracy. And so, you know, I would say that the protests are, are giving the Israeli public an opportunity to have like a collective civics lesson. And so there is a lot of talk about what it means to be living in a democracy and what it means to have checks and balances and what it means to have gatekeepers like the, you know, the attorney general and the Supreme Court and legal advisors to the Knesset. But also, you know, this block of protesters, which is called the anti-occupation block, is saying there can be no democracy with occupation. You have to look this in the eye in order to understand what we mean when we say equality. We can't have equality for some. There is no such thing as a partial democracy. These are the things that those people are saying. And while they still are, I must say, a minority of the protesters, they are there and there is some tension sometimes between the protesters. They are also very much a part of the protest. They are there. They are present. And no one is screaming and crying that they're there. Um, so I do think that there is a message that these people that are, you know, the the, the people who are um, the human rights organizations and the, the you know the the voices for equality for all and the voices for um, an end to what is essentially an apartheid regime in the West Bank like they those voices are there and so I do hope that these re these protests against the judicial reform can also spark this conversation about you know an end to the occupation. Mm -hmm. Now, Shiva, there are many who argue that as this government, this extreme right government, the most extreme in Israel's history, pushes forward on the settlement front, more and more land seizures, more and more settlers driving Palestinians out, that, you know, the two-state deal is dead. Is it dead? That's a great question. I, I am a big believer in the um, notion of 
I think the hope that comes from politics is that nothing is ever dead. I think that people have been saying that the two-state solution is dying for decades. I think there are some people who said it was never born. And, you know, I don't I I don't know the answer to your question if the two-state solution is dead. But I will say this. It's hard to see how you remove 500,000 settlers from established communities in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. But I'm also not a pessimist. And I do think that where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and that political will is hard to come by in Israel, but is not impossible. There are other instances that I can point to it when Israel pulled out from Lebanon, that was a matter of political will. When Israel disengaged from Gaza, as we mentioned in 2005, that was a matter of political will. Right now, Israel incentivizes through tax deductions, subsidies, other state policies, cheaper buses, settlements in the West Bank. It is cheaper and more ex- more. Uh, worth your while. You can have a bigger house if you go to a settlement in the West Bank. Um, And this is true for, imagine, you know, ultra-Orthodox families. A lot of settlers are ultra-Orthodox because they need the space. They have families of, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 children, and you cannot do that in a crowded city. And so it's, you know, the state has helped them get to where they are by making it cheaper. But if it cut those incentives and made it economically unfeasible or at least unreasonable for people to live in the West Bank, I do think that the calculus of a family like that would change. I think it wouldn't change for all of the very intensely ideological settlers like Smutrich. But I think that Smutrich, the Smutriches are a minority, a really, really small minority. And there wouldn't have to be another disengagement from Gaza, like when we saw soldiers carrying people by their limbs out of their homes, children screaming, parents crying, praying, authorities, you know, don't take us out of our homes. You wouldn't have to have that for the government to slowly, slowly turn off the faucet um, and get people to be less interested in going out to the West Bank. But I, but that's a really theoretical way of doing it. And it has, ne- it, you know, right now, I would say we're really, really, really very far from having a government that is interested in doing that. Um, and the settlers are still a very powerful contingent politically, and they've made themselves very powerful politically because they have this burning project, which is the settlement enterprise and the greater land of Israel. Mm. Yeah, it is all about the government in place. And I'm just wondering, you know, Joe Biden has finally extended the invitation that Netanyahu so badly wanted. What do you think about that? (laughs) I mean, I was surprised because I do think that the politics of it were pretty clear, which were that it was a snub. That the that what had happened was that Biden invited um, the president of Israel, which is a symbolic position, much like the Queen in England, um, to to come to the White House and to give an address to a joint session of Congress. And he had invited the president Herzog, Isaac Herzog, um, because he didn't want to invite Benjamin Netanyahu because he wanted to say Benjamin Netanyahu, you at this moment are not welcome in the White House. And it had seemed that that was the that was the tack, that was the way of sort of using the leverage because traditionally in a a new prime minister of Israel is invited to the White House um, within six months um, and Netanyahu had not yet been invited. Anyway, this was a snub. The move was a snub. And so I was surprised when I heard that the invitation had been extended. But the way that the administration, the Biden administration sort of explained it was that um, they didn't want the story to continue to be about the snub. They wanted it to be about the substance of, of the politics and the policies and, you know, I, I don't know exactly what to make of that, but I do think that there are some harsh words that Biden should be telling 
um, Netanyahu right now. And I think that if he, you know, if he's not, it's our, it's our job. And I say our job as, as uh, I, you know, I work for the new Israel fund and we're activists and, you know, progressive Jews. And we believe that it is our job um, to, to, to push him in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. I'm just, yeah, I, I think that Biden 50 years in politics, he's a pragmatist. There are domestic issues at home. He's making various kinds of uh, moves in that light and you know <sighs> palestinians once again just get cast aside but it's not just the united states is it i mean the international community international pressure you mentioned that this has been important in uh, maintaining the survival of hanal Akmar. but you know as you said there are other communities that are just disappearing almost on a daily basis and this settlement expansion, this plan of, of, of Smotrich and Ben Gavir goes forward, I would say, almost unimpeded. What do we need to do internationally? What more? Are we What are we not doing? And I say, you know, I, I live in the United Kingdom. Good heavens, the British have a lot to answer for in, in the mess that they left when they walked away from Palestine uh, in 1948. But what more should the international community be doing? This is a, also a good question. So for one thing, I would say that uh, the international community needs to stop playing like the small potatoes game. Uh, you know, we are, when you talk about Khan al-Ahmar and it's an incredible place to visit, you know, they've built with international aid an ecological school built of tires and mud. Like they're very, um, they're really wonderful, like welcoming people. And we should not not focus on Khan al-Ahmar, but this is not, you know, and, and the international community, including the, you know, um, the ICC special prosecutor has said that the demolition of Khan al-Ahmar would be a war crime. And that's the kind of thing that makes Bibi Netanyahu pause. You know, I remember when Hillary Clinton, when she was secretary of state, said something about one of the villages in the South Hebron Hills. And she just, you know, all, all it took was a statement. And that was, you know, that was off the table. And I do think that that's still true. I do think that the, when the when when big names and big people in the international community say the name of a village, that village is safe at least for a while. And so there is a world in which you know you could you could start naming names. Um, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> I've been thinking about this when it comes to the South Hebron Hills. You know, there are twelve villages in Masafriyata, like I mentioned, in, in this southern part of the West Bank, that are under the threat of eviction because they also, like Khan al Ahmar, the Supreme Court rejected their petition to not be demolished. So, you know, if you know somebody like Anthony Blinken were to just list the names Atwan and Mufagara, Tuba, Umokher, and you know, just name the names. I think that there would be a a significant shift in the way that the Israeli government relates to them, which is to right now just sort of slowly demolish things that they have uh, and make their lives difficult. There are other villages that have name recognition, like Susia is one that's that's familiar. But I would say that the international community writ large needs to be looking bigger at the bigger picture. You know, they need to be talking about what's actually going on on the ground. So like, you know, like I mentioned, the pogroms that have been taking place. One of the things that in the United States, I think, is really shocking is that there are there was this um there were a number of these like hundreds of settlers descending on villages moments where they would where they just burned cars they tried to torch buildings they attacked um homes and businesses um and you know in one case at least one palestinian was was shot and killed i mean these are armed settlers coming with with you know 
with fire. And a couple a, a week or two ago, they um, a couple of places were attacked. One of them was Turmus Aya. Turmus Aya is a village that is very wealthy. It's home to a lot of American citizens, Palestinian American citizens. And I actually just heard on a webinar that we did um, from one of the women who who were who were there. It was a Palestinian American woman speaking to us in English, and she said, "My kids tried to call the embassy." They tried to call the American embassy and say, we are unsafe. They are attacking us. We And they, they literally thought they were going to die. You know, but the last embassy to pay a visit to this village after that night of settler terror was the American embassy. Um, and they have not indicted. Um, and they and the American embassy hasn't pushed for indictments of um, the attackers on Tumor side. There have been zero indictments of people who who uh, who, you know, you know, stampeded through that village that night. And so, you know, that's something that I do think that the international community can do is to sort of just name names of actual places and see the people who are there because they are real people and they are really there. And also um, to sort of push for actual an end to the impunity to the to the to the total getting away with it that um, that settlers and their their folks have. Um, I also just the last thing that I need to say, and I think this is just like the messaging that that the international community is missing, which is that the security of the Palestinians and the security of the Israelis depend on each other. There is no world in which Palestinians have security and Israelis don't and Israelis have security and Palestinians don't. Neither will be safe until both are safe. And so that needs to be constantly, you know, in the sights of policymakers. We need to know that both people need to be safe. There cannot just be security for Israelis and there certainly cannot just be security for Palestinians. So uh, I'll end with that. That's a very good point to end on. As you say, there can be no security unless there is security for both the Palestinians and the Israelis at the same time. And also, Lesheva, naming names. These are people. These are families. These are villages. Uh, I don't know that I doubt Mr. Blinken listens to our podcast, but if he if he does, by any stretch of the imagination, then he should be listening to that. Name the names. Yeah, name the names. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Elisheva Goldberg, the media and policy director for the New Israel Fund and a contributing editor for jewishcurrents.org. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since we launched three years ago, it's been listened to over 150,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You'll no doubt have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Elisheva. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn and search our library of more than 150 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.